0: Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 FM in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 7 p.m. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Each week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in New York City. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Hey, what's up, New York City? This is Amy Wilson. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute, live from the new WBAI studios. We are a socialist radio show and podcast from members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The DSA is the largest socialist organization in the United States, with 95,000 members nationwide, New York City DSA is our biggest chapter. We are run by our 9,000 plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. Once again, my name is Amy Wilson. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm a worker and organizer here in New York City.
1: Yo, what's good, New York? I'm Jack Devine. He and pronouns. I'm a member of PSC CUNY and uh, excited for today's show.
0: 2023 has been a major year for workers so far, and the momentum shows no signs of slowing down as we head into 2024. While major strikes by UAW at the big three in the auto industry and by WGA and SAG-AFTRA in the entertainment world are making headlines, thousands of workers across the country are taking action in ways big and small that you may not always hear about. Tonight, we're joined live by Jenny Brown, assistant editor at Labor Notes, and author of Birth Strike, The Hidden Fight Over Women's Work, to discuss the labor year so far and what organizers can learn as we head into 2024. We also hear from Evan, Vice Chair of the Graduate Center Chapter of the Professional Staff Congress at CUNY, PSC, on how union organizers are protecting the free speech of Palestinian solidarity activists on campus. It's going to be a great show, and we will be taking your calls later tonight. So we hope you'll stick around for that. But first, the headlines with Caroline Van Zeitz.
2: Hello, listeners. This is Caroline with your headlines for today, Tuesday, November 28th. In Eric Adams' scandal news, the deadline for the Adult Survivors Act, ASA, which was passed by the state legislature last year and extended the statute of limitations for civil suits related to sexual assault, saw a flurry of new suits filed including one against Mayor Eric Adams for allegedly assaulting a woman in 1993, an allegation Adams has denied. An NYPD officer is also suing her union representative. And State Senator Kevin Parker, District 21 Flatbush, who was challenged in 2022 by DSA-endorsed David Alexis and has a history of violent outbursts towards colleagues and reporters, has been accused of rape in a suit made possible under the ASA. A new poll shows approval rating for Mayor Adams sinking, with more than half of respondents disapproving of his performance in office, and more than 70% responding that they believe he did something illegal or unethical during his mayoral campaign. In local news, New York's highest court is likely to decide in the coming months whether state Democrats will redraw the state's congressional map ahead of 2024 elections in a manner that could reverse some of the state party's losses in 2022. A bill passed by the legislature to increase transparency among LLCs is one of the many awaiting Governor Kathy Hochul's signature before the end of the year. City lawyers are trying to recoup $474,000 from former Mayor Bill de Blasio to cover expenses incurred from his failed run for president in 2020. Even as federal prosecutors are moving to strip the city of its authority over Rikers Island due to dangerous conditions that perpetually plague the jails, Mayor Adams insists that the situation there is moving in the quote-unquote right direction. Despite the state's new HALT Solitary Confinement Act, which strictly limits the use of solitary confinement in New York correctional facilities, Jails around the state are finding ways to circumvent the law. Rideshare Service Revel is ending its shared moped service in New York. For Revolutions Per Minute, this is Caroline Van Zeitz. Now back to the studio for today's show.
1: Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn and an incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA Electoral Working Group, covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at Thorn nyc.substack.com. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us on RPM. It's great to be here. So tell us about yourself and what brought you to your current politics. Which influential events, people, public figures, personal experiences, et cetera, made you the person you are today?
3: Oh, gosh. Um, that, in five minutes, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, I I guess I started out in my activism um really in the 80s trying to stop US wars in Central America and I was also involved in a lot of feminist organizing. And then um a group of us from my union local at the University of Florida and ASME local um, piled into a van and we drove up to a rally supporting workers in Decatur, Illinois in 1995. It was a situation where there were there were two plants that um, were on strike, and one that was locked out. It was Caterpillar, Bridgestone, Firestone, and Staley, which was a corn processing facility. Um, and at the rally, and then there was a conference associated with the rally. We act, we just stumbled upon a talk by Tony Mizaki of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers, who was making a pitch to the striking and locked-out workers to join the effort that his union was spearheading to build a labor party in the United States. Um, and we got really excited by that. And we ended up going to the founding convention of the Labor Party in 1996, um, which had unions representing like a million workers. And um, we went back and started a chapter in Gainesville, which actually still exists. Um, and through the Labor Party, I was co-chair of the, that chapter for 10 years. We worked on universal health care, the right to a job at a living wage, free higher education, um, basic, the basic rights to, for labor to organize. Um, and the general idea was, which I think is still what DSA is working on, is working people need an independent political vehicle, independent of corporate interests, however that um, manifests itself. So that, that has been like maybe the main thing that I've been working on. Um and I worked at Labor Notes from twenty ten to twenty fifteen. Um, and I just rejoined the staff last year. Um in between that, um, I was able to write a couple of books with the financial support of the Women's Liberation Group, National Women's Liberation. Um, the the one that Amy mentioned, Birth Strike, The Hidden Fight Over Women's Work, and also a book about the history of the abortion struggle called Without Apology, which is part of the Jacobin book series. Um and basically, in birth strike, I make the argument that our fight over reproductive freedom is really at its core about the work and expense of bearing and raising children and who's going to do it and who's going to pay for it. So I get into kind of um, you know the political economy of 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 what's going on with that and and connect it up with um with the struggle against uh, you know the corporate control of everything in our society.
0: Thank you, Jenny, so much for joining us on our show and for sharing a little bit of your experience. Um, As we talked about before we went live tonight, I'm also an organizer in the struggle for reproductive freedom and abortion rights. And uh, my comrade here in the studio, Jack, is a higher education worker and, and union organizer. So I think there's a lot that we can both see of ourselves in your story. Um, and it's also really interesting, as always, to hear um, of the lo- length of time <laughs> um, that some of these very basic struggles like universal health care and, and living wages have, have been going on for in this country. So thanks for your work over the years. And I'm really excited to uh, dig into what's going on this year and into next year with you as we go on through tonight's show. For those who are just tuning in, this is Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. Today, we are reviewing the year so far in the labor movement and looking at what's to come in 2024. So let's get started with that. We are going to have time later in our show for a a very full discussion of um, these issues. And we're all nerds. here in the in the studio. So a lot of these stories I've been covering for, I've been uh, covering for Revolutions Permitted or following myself, Jack the same, Jenny in, in your own work, but let's um, give an entryway for folks who maybe are too busy working in their own lives to cover, to, to follow the labor movement in such detail. So if you would, Jenny, Can you give us a big picture of the year so far um, in the labor movement?
3: Yeah, well, it's been a big year for strikes and a big year for contract gains. Um, Half a million U.S. workers have been on strike at some point this year, um, which is like um, double last year, and that was double the year before, kind of weird because of the pandemic, but we have seen recent years with this many people on strike um, or nearly as many, like during 2018 with the Red for Ed strikes, um, it was almost that many. Um, but one interesting thing about this year is that more of the large strikes are in the private sector and there are more manufacturing strikes. Um, but we shouldn't get too like um, uh, excited about the, the half a million workers because I have to note that um, Half a million public sector workers walked out in Quebec just a few days ago. So, like um, a much smaller country, much smaller province. So, um, so w- you know, it's but it but for the U.S., this is a big advance in flexing worker power this year. Um, and it started out with like a really significant victory for seven thousand nurses in New York in the New York State Nurses Association who struck for safe staffing levels, and won some pretty good language to enforce um, hiring enough nurses to adequately take care of patients. That's been a huge issue for nurses all over the country. Um, and then the biggest strike, of course, which has gotten a lot of media coverage, was was the actors. So that's 160,000 people. Um, and then um, and they walked out after the screenwriters, the Writers Guild of America, screenwriters, that's another 11,000 people. So that was an enormous amount of of, of folks hitting the picket lines and very high profile. Um, which is interesting because when I when I talk to um, people in other industries, there they're very much like, "Oh yeah, going on strike is normal because I've seen all this stuff on TV about people going on strike." Um, and then, of course. The UAW strike at the big three, um, 50,000 people eventually struck um, during that really strategically brilliant expanding strike that they call the stand up strike. They started um, with one plant at each of the big three automakers, Stellantis, which used to be called Chrysler, um, Ford, and GM, and then A week later, they called out the GM and Stellantis parts distribution centers, which are smaller facilities, but they are highly profitable because they supply parts to dealerships. And that got the company's attention, and you started to see motion at the table in fits and starts. And by striking important plants at the companies they were trying to move and sparing those which were moving in the right direction, they won contracts that while they don't make up for all the concessions the last 30 years, they take big strides in that direction. We can get into more detail on the UAW stuff later. Another thing that I have noticed um, for this year is, wow, Los Angeles, a union town. Um, One of the biggest strikes this year was at the LA schools. Um, Workers represented by the service workers, SEIU, walked out and then the teachers walked out with them And that was 65,000 people in the two unions striking together, and they were able to get a decent contract for the SEIU folks. Um, The hotel workers in LA are continuing to do rolling short strikes, basically since the summer. Um, 11,000 people have participated in those. And the big issue there is, as around the country, but especially in LA, is the pay so that people can live near where they work. Like people are commuting for hours or living in their cars because they can't afford the rents in the vicinity of their jobs. And so that's that's the big issue there. Um, And then in October, a coalition of unions struck Kaiser in four states, 75,000 people walked out. Um, They were able to win a 21% raise. And this is um, in particular in California under pressure from a new state law that's raising healthcare worker pay to $25 minimum. But um, but that was also a significant um, a significant walkout, um, and then we had some notable ca- contract campaigns that didn't end in a strike. The biggest one probably being the Teamsters um, at UPS. That's a huge contract that covers 340,000 workers. So package car drivers, preloaders, sorters, people working in the warehouse. Um, the new leadership was who was elected at the Teamsters in March of last year. Um, headed up by Sean O'Brien. They defeated Hoffa's handpicked successor, and this was really a reform slate that came in. And going into this negotiation, you could really see the contrast with the previous administration. Um, Prior to the expiration of the contract, they actually got people ready. They had parking lot meetings. They had a series of practice pickets before walking into work. And you can imagine the managers sort of nervously um, on the inside, wondering what was happening when everybody's walking in together, all excited because they've just been picketing. Um, They went down to the wire threatening to strike and the company basically caved on all the headline demands, um, including eliminating this really hated second tier driver category, the 22.4s, they ended a forced um, six day of work, basically you now can refuse a six day of work every week. Um, they got a significant raise for for everybody and, and more for the lower paid workers and part-timers. Um, and they were actually able to win even bigger gains in some ways than from the 1997 strike, basically by credibly threatening to shut down the company. Um, and similarly, the Culinary Union, in Las is part of Unite Here, um, in Las Vegas, hotel and casino workers and restaurant workers, and there's also a separate local of bartenders. They did et- escalating pre-strike actions, marches, sit-ins, took a bunch of arrests, and um, right at the very end, the, the companies caved, and they got some pretty good gains. And one of the key things that they won for the for people who make up hotel rooms. Um, daily room cleaning. The hotels had cut back staffing during the pandemic and they tried to make up for it by only cleaning rooms at the end of somebody's day. And that meant that the rooms were much more work to clean, but the cleaners are still under the expectations of how many rooms they have to clean. So that was like this terrible form of speed up that they were able to defeat through that contract. Um, so that's a, d- just a flavor of some of the stuff that's been going on.
1: Yeah, so I think you've uh, made a number of crucial points. Sorry, I was dealing with a bit of an audio issue there. I didn't realize that it stopped. Uh, but I think you hit on a number of uh, really important things. One being that uh, this this wave that we're seeing this year, I think goes beyond the timeframe of a single year, that it's it's building off things that have been going on for nearly half a decade. I think uh, people forget because of the pandemic and the kind of the break that that put into the labor movement, that both 2018 and 2019 were major years of strike activity, especially in the public sector with the red Fred movement, with the teachers in Chicago, Los Angeles, uh, West Virginia, Arizona, Oklahoma states, all across the country going on strike, uh, striking uh, for the common good for more than just bread and butter demands. And we're seeing this continue in various ways in the strikes we're seeing this year, whether it's the strikes at Rutgers University or the strikes uh, by the nurses and healthcare workers that are not just about wages, but about patients and making sure that patients receive good care. So we have this kind of a longer time frame for the strike. And while we're not at the stage of something like uh, the uh, post-World War I strike wave, the huge numbers we saw with the Seattle general strike or the steel workers or the coal miners during that period, or the 1934 strike wave with the San Francisco general strike and the Minneapolis general strike and the the uh, textile worker strike up uh, up and down the East Coast. And that year, the the sit-down strike wave later on in the 30s, Uh Uh, that led to the formation of the UAW and a lot of the cio unions or the post-war world war ii strikes we saw in 1946 we're not reaching those sort of numbers but what we are seeing is an increasingly militant working class uh that at least among the working class that is organized and prepared to fight we're seeing these kind of this rank and file movement taking place where uh, more and more workers are getting organized, they're taking control of the leadership of their unions, and they're making their unions more willing to fight. And this is in both the public sector and the private sector, both with teachers, with auto workers, with Teamsters. So we're seeing kind of all these very exciting developments. But the key question will be in the long term, will we be able to organize more workers into unions? Will uh, UAW be able to build off of these gains at the big three and translate them to, to Tesla, to the, the foreign auto companies that are all over the South? Will the Teamsters be able to organize at Amazon? I think these are questions we can explore later in the show, but I would just want to transition now uh, to something that's uh, personal to me and going on in my union, the PSC. And we're joined by Evan, vice chair of the graduate center chapter of PSC CUNY to discuss how union organizers are protecting the free speech Palestinian solidarity activists on campus. So let's roll that clip. Hey, we're here with Evan, uh, Vice Chair of the uh, Grad Center Chapter of PSC CUNY. Thank you so much for
4: joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Of course. So there's obviously a lot going on in the world with uh, Israel's war against Gaza, and many uh, members of the CUNY faculty, students are speaking out against the war, but they've uh, faced uh, retribution for doing so. So what uh, is... What are PSC organizers, particularly at the Grad Center, doing to help um, Palestinian solidarity activists um, in their struggle uh, for a free Palestinian, or at least to protect their free
4: speech? Sure. Um, I think uh, one of the most important things we're doing right now um, is trying to push our union, uh, the PSC, uh, to um, take seriously uh, people's free speech rights, and the way that um, you know university administrations, in- including here um, in New York at CUNY, um, have uh, tried to repress uh, pro-Palestinian speech. Um, so we've um, tried to do a number of things, um, including um, passing some uh, resolutions uh, within our Graduate Center chapter, um, and um, you know putting pressure um, on our uh, union leadership to. Uh, you know, protect uh, students, faculty, and staff um, when they uh, speak out uh, for Palestine.
1: All right, great, thank you. Is is there any case in particular that stands out as kind of a reprehensible action from the uh, CUNY administration targeting uh, faculty, uh, union members uh, for speaking out on this issue?
4: Um, Yeah, I I would say um, uh, two things come to mind. Um Number one, you know, I, I can't really go into um, too many details, but um, you know, there is has been a case um, where an adjunct was called into a meeting, um, and uh, they were essentially reprimanded for um, statements they had made, um, just about their support for Palestine. Uh, and uh, you know there was no no basis for um, what the administration did except that, um, they you know found the speech unpalatable. Um, so that's that's one. and and um, you know, our grievance department um, has been trying to handle these cases. Um, and we've been trying to um, push the union, you know, to uh, make sure that there are resources available both for staff members and um, rank and file um, union members as well um, to deal with these situations. the um the second um, really kind of reprehensible case, uh, which you and, and you know probably your listeners too are aware of, um, is at Brooklyn College um, in uh, early uh, mid October um, when the uh, Students for Justice in Palestine chapter there um, was pushed. Their rally was pushed off campus onto a public street where um, the NYPD could um, kind of surveil and repress the protests. Um, and uh, you know most infamously. Um, Council member uh, Ina Vernikov um, arrived and brandished a gun um, at these peaceful peaceful protesters. Um, The administration, both at Brooklyn College and the chancellor, their um, actions leading up to this, I think, gave Vernikov the sense that um, she could do this. Um, There are um, allegations that she met with uh, Brooklyn College's president. Um, And after that, um, you know, the administration refused to take any responsibility Um, so, uh, I, I, you know, I think that it, it really um, is just, you know, to use your words by principle, um, the way that they have treated um, uh, pro-Palestine voices.
1: Yeah, this seems like a really critical moment for the union, not just to step up for bread and butter issues, which are obviously key during contract negotiations, but to, to stand for key principles of uh, of a democracy in the society of people being able to ex- express their opinions, to st- uh, stand for free speech, to protect its members and the students from being harassed by the, the kind of management of CUNY and targeted by politicians and threatened with violence. So the union with its collective power can make a real stand. So I just want to thank you so much uh, for joining us on Revolutions Per Minute.
4: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: You just heard Evan of the Graduate Center Chapter of the Staff Union of CUNY PSC, and we will be covering labor solidarity with Palestine and campus organizing on Palestine more broadly in upcoming shows. This is Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. Today, we are talking about the labor year in review with Jenny Brown of Labor Notes. Been a fascinating conversation so far. I can't wait to dig back into it in the second half of our show. And we will be taking your calls um, at around 7.45 tonight, so please get ready for that. If you have a question or a comment or a message of solidarity for organizing workers, we will be um, opening our phones later in the show. But first, we do just wanna take a moment as we usually do in the middle of our show Uh, to remind you that WBAI is a listener-sponsored station. You hear it multiple times an hour, every hour. But what does that mean? It means that listeners like you have stepped up to donate to the station, whether that be a one-time donation or whether that be to become a BAI buddy, which is our way of saying a monthly donation. And that constitutes a big base of WBAI's support. Uh, It's a really important aspect of the WBAI model. It's something that has allowed this radio station to persist for many decades um, here in New York City um, without having to worry too much about the type of corporate and capitalistic restrictions on speech um, that we're seeing more and more of these days. Um, You just heard about, uh, you know, repression of pro-Palestine speech. We've covered that on previous shows. And it's something that WBAI represents a really strong front against. If you've been listening to WBAI over the last weeks and months, I'm certain that you've heard all types of diverse perspectives on what's happening in Gaza and the struggle for Palestinian liberation more broadly. And it is incredibly important to have that type of media product available freely to the working class here on the airwaves of 99.5 FM in New York City, a major, major audience and a major, major possibility for making change, for raising consciousness and for building community around these issues that are so crucial for all of us to to get behind. So if what I just said sounds good to you, um, sounds like something that you're interested in supporting, or maybe you used to support WBAI, haven't tuned back in in a while. It is Giving Tuesday, so it would be a great day to start supporting WBAI. You can do that by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. You can go to WBAI.org as well to make your donation any time of the day or night. Giving Tuesday is that Tuesday after Thanksgiving where we've gotten through Black Friday, we've gotten through Cyber Monday, and now, finally, <laughs> uh, good causes have their their turn in the spotlight. Um, you know, I think that redistribution of income is something we should be doing 365 days per year, but it's something that uh, here on Giving Tuesday you might consider um, a little bit more deeply. So, Uh, If you'd like to give a donation to WBAI, once again, you can do that either uh, one time or become a monthly donor, which is really, really useful for the station. The way to do that is by calling 212-209-2950, that's 212-209-2950, or go to WBAI.org. And now we turn back to our live interview with Jenny Brown.
1: Thank you, Amy, for a great pitch. And going back to that big picture perspective, Jenny, and you were already hitting on some of this, but what are some of the notable trends that are we seeing right now in terms of labor activity?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, I think you made a good point about looking at the longer roots of some of these developments. Um, So the change in direction in both the Teamsters and the UAW came from reform caucuses within those unions who had been arguing for a more militant approach to the companies Um, in some case for decades. I mean, in the case of the Teamsters, the groundwork started to be laid in the 70s. um, And then a few years later, after Teamsters for Democratic Union was founded, um, the union got the zap from the federal government for corruption. And the government was basically going to take over the union. And TDU argued against government control. They argued that democracy in the union member control would be the force that could end corruption. And so they managed to win a one member, one vote um, uh, method for elections for the top leadership of their union before they had, it had been um, delicate votes. So it was very much stage managed and convention delegates were, were very much controlled by the, by the um, people who were in power in the union. Um, so, the same thing happened 30 years later at the UAW when um, the president, the former president pled guilty to embezzling union funds and several top officers were sent to prison. So they've, the reform caucus in, in the UAW, Unite All Workers for Democracy or UAWD, they followed the model that the Teamsters for a Democratic Union had, had laid out. Um, and they argued that instead of a government takeover Democracy was the answer to corruption once again, and they pushed for an election where UAW members could decide if they wanted a one-member, one-vote system. And then that passed, and it set the stage for the slate that the reformers put up, members united, to win a majority of the executive board and to get into a runoff election against the incumbent president. Um, you know in this Indiana electrician and union rep a guy no one heard of Sean Fain like basically won by a few hundred votes out of 14 hundred hundred and forty thousand ballots I think were cast in that election so um, so you know it, it very very much um, contingent on that organizing done by that reform caucus and we're seeing um, we're seeing reform caucuses um that have been extremely successful in the in the teachers unions. So, for example, the Chicago teachers and the LA teachers um, both have uh, are now led by reform caucuses. Um, and we're also seeing it in other unions, like the United Food and Commercial Workers, who represent a lot of grocery store employees and and a lot of meatpacking workers. Um, they now have a, a fairly substantial reform caucus that's working. Working away on making changes in their union. Um, we even just recently, Labor Notes reported on um, IATSE, the uh, the Theatrical and Stage Employees Union. Um, they have just formed a, a, a caucus to um, to fight for better contracts. So, so this is really, I think, an underlying important aspect that we're seeing right now. Um, and, and really has driven like at least two of these ver- very important um, contract campaigns and strikes um, that we've seen this year.
1: So the, root, the roots of this current moment are deep. It's not just the past five years, but with the Teamsters going back to the 70s. And it, it seems that uh, the workers were right to empower themselves rather than the government in their effort to transform their union into a militant fighting union to make it a more democratic institution. And I think what what we're also seeing is it's, it's not just things that are happening in the workplace, but it's movements outside of it. We saw this it's Chicago's teachers union, where the reform caucus was brought together because they were fighting against school closures. Obviously, that's directly related to their workplace, but it's about kind of a, the broader austerity that was being implemented in the city of Chicago and fighting back about that, and forming reading groups and reading no- Naomi Klein's Shock Doctrine, kind of bringing people together, and this kind of leading to this uh, eventual leadership election that uh, the that they were able to take over the union and uh, become its leadership and lead multiple strikes. And then we see, we've had on our show uh, uh, organizers who've been involved in the uh, uh, UAWD's effort uh, to take over the union. We've had Chris come come on. He's an auto worker in Michigan. And for him, the Bernie Sanders campaign was a very uh, enlightening moment. the language of class struggle that Bernie was speaking on the the billionaire class the 1% uh, that need to challenge them and organize against them and to build a mass movement really spoke to Chris and it led him to uh, want to get involved and then he saw also kind of the the failures of the the 2019 GM strike uh, with the UAW, where they weren't, they weren't prepared, they weren't organized, they didn't get ready in the same way that they did for this stand-up strike. So we see how kind of all these things are rooted in movements within the unions, but also action that's taking place outside of them. So what's been surprising or unexpected for you in the labor movement this year?
3: Um, So it's interesting to me, there's, um, I guess I'll just continue with the UAW. Like I mean, there were a lot of unexpected gains um, in this contract, and it with well, three contracts, and it really broke new ground on what unions can argue for and get. Like for decades, the companies have said that decisions on what to make and where to make it are not really on the table for the union to negotiate. And, and the unions pretty much agreed. Um, but here you have the union forcing Stellantis to reopen the Belvedere, Illinois plant that they shuttered in March, which put 1300 people out of work. Um, and now they, now they got Stellantis to agree to, to reopen the plant. Um, the union actually won the right to strike over product decisions and investment as well as over plant closures. This is sort of unprecedented, um, and even if you had that right like most unions wouldn't do it but i can well see that the UAW with its current leadership and it's always been a really strong striking union um that uh that they could really enforce some of this stuff if they organize well they can they can enforce it um in addition you have the union winning the agreement that GM and Stellantis will put battery plants that are still being built or are in the planning stages under the big three agreement. Um, at Ford, they'll still have to organize them, but they did win neutrality agreements from the company. That's really big. Um, they also won the cost of living adjustments. They lost in 2008. They eliminated wage tiers. Wages will be up by like from 25 to 40% over the four years of the new contract, which is, um, you know, depending on what, where you are in the, in the, um, wage scale. And for people that are lower paid, they're getting more, um, pensions were a big area. They weren't able to budge the company on, on the tiers, but they did get bigger contributions and more in the traditional pension. Um, and you know, like at Ford starting pay is going from $18 an hour to $28 an hour. I mean, that's life-changing in terms of like being able to pay your bills. Um, Another thing that was surprising is that the contract did not go sailing through. People in the plants thought the strike was so effective that they could get more um, if they they continued to strike. So many members voted against it. And in fact, at GM, it, it almost didn't pass. So this is because people's expectations have been raised, which I think is a really good thing. By contrast, you would see previous UAW administrations trying to tamp down expectations every way they could. And in fact, they would like use the threat that if you didn't uh, sign this agreement, if you didn't agree to this contract, you would um, have to go out on strike. And it was a way to force people to vote for terrible contracts. So it's like night and day by comparison. Um. The other surprise has been, and I think I hear this from a lot of people who have been in the labor movement for a long time, that um, the labor board is cranking out a lot better decisions than it has in the past. And we have a general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, who is genuinely trying to enforce the statute. Um, this doesn't help, I think, in the way people think it does, though. Um, it helps on, on the ground, like, okay, fired Starbucks workers have been able to get their job back as a result of the board being better. But um, perhaps more than that, I think the board's actions have been very important in giving people hope and a sense of righteous anger that the law is being so flagrantly violated by employers because we still see that new organizing is getting stymied by our weak labor laws. So, like, Starbucks workers have now won elections at more than 360 stores, and they don't have a single contract yet. Um, The Amazon workers at Staten Island don't have a contract. Um, There was a group of Amazon workers in Palmdale, California, who deliver packages through a contractor. Um, They joined the Teamsters. Um, Amazon terminated that subcontractor's contract. And then they went on a ULP strike, and basically Amazon has been able to evade the law so far. Um, but there are, and there have been some good decisions that we'll have to see how it plays out, right? So it's not entirely that um, that it's just uh, you know we can say our employer is breaking the law. Um, there, this uh, decision in August uh, around the Semex case, basically, it says that if the employer is so egregious in its unfair labor practices during a, during a union election, um, that it would, um, that they can force the the company to recognize the union and not even bother to run a second election. Um, as long as the union filed for an election with majority support. So if they had over 50% cards, so, um, that would have helped in this, um, this six-year, almost seven-year drive at um, the the Kumho Tire uh, uh, plant in Macon, Georgia, where they basically they they won. Um, their, first they lost their election. Then they was, it, the company was forced to rerun the election because of the egregious law breaking they'd done. Then they won the election, and then it took them until this year. That was in 2017 until this year to actually get their first contract. So um, that decision may help um, other efforts where the company just breaks the law continuously, and and it also might act as a deterrent. So that's been interesting to to see the board being, um, you know, basically the organizing is creating the pressure to make the laws better. Um, And then another thing that I think is surprising is, that polling shows a really sharp uptick in popularity of unions, like not seen since the 1960s. Um, and the strikes themselves have been popular too, like 78% supported the auto workers and 76% supported the actors, um, in just of the general public. Um, Another surprise has been, to me, just watching the United Electrical Workers who have had a series of absolutely blowout votes to unionize among graduate workers. Like they, like Northwestern, Johns Hopkins, University of Chicago, Minnesota, they all won their union elections by margins over 90%. And in Minnesota, it was a unit that had previously defeated the organizing drives a couple times. So, um, I mean, that's just, astonishing to me um that they're getting that kind of numbers um so those are a few things that that occur to me as kind of surprising oh another surprising thing is hearing the president of the Auto Workers, sean fain um call for everybody to uh coordinate contract expirations for april 30th 2028 so as to um, set up like for a general strike on May first, <laughs> so that was unusual.
0: Yes, mark your calendars for May first, twenty twenty eight. Could be could be something really significant uh, if people put in the work between between now and then. Um, that was wonderful, Jenny. I, I learned so much from your response that, that I hadn't heard about even, and um, I've been really uh, enjoying and appreciating this discussion so far. Just to briefly respond to some of the things that that you said there, I think um, you know, look, the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, tacking in a more pro-worker direction is so hopeful and so exciting. But also, I think, and and on this point, I'm speaking from my direct experience as a worker organizer at a major retail corporation, Trader Joe's. Um, it really speaks to the power imbalance between to be frank, the United States federal government and uh, corporations um, operating in the United States, um, the NLRB has, you know, ultimately such limited power to bring um, large corporations, Trader Joe's certainly, but also if we look at international corporations like Starbucks, like Amazon, these are entities that are operating on a scale that's that's really unprecedented um, in this the structure of of human society. And I think that's that's as big as our vision needs to be as well as, as organizers, is not not relying on the United States federal government or on forces from above to come and, and save workers, but focusing on organizing from the bottom up, including looking at things from an international perspective, which, of course, tonight's show, we've been focusing on the United States labor movement. But um, perhaps in in future shows, we can dig more into what's going on across the world because there, there sure is um, plenty. Um, and speaking as somebody who um, has directly experienced the psychological onslaught of union busting um, and of the flexing of, of corporate power, you know, it, it's something that is is really difficult um, to go through, um, no matter how educated on labor you are, no matter how much you know your rights. Um, so just keeping in mind that there are, you know, about approximately 94% of Private sector workers have never had an opportunity to join a union, and and that number is even higher if you're looking at, you know, my home fields of of retail, customer service, and these other fields that are in the modern day largely performed by women, people of color, and and queer people. So just just throwing out a couple of responses there. Um, We will be opening our phones now for some callers to join the discussion or ask a question of Jenny Brown, who's live here in the studio with us. The number for that is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Keep in mind, we're coming to the end of our show, so we will have to keep um, discussion brief and to the point and zesty. Um, But while we're waiting for uh, some calls to come in, Jenny, um, anything you want to shine a spotlight on in terms of smaller stories, things that didn't reach the heights of the UAW or the SAG-AFTRA strike or the Teamsters um, practice picketing, um, things that people might have have missed in 2023.
3: Yeah. So um, there are 1,700 nurses in New Jersey who have been on strikes since August at Robert Wood Johnson Hospital. Um, And the big issue in this strike, as in all nursing strikes right now, is understaffing Um, the workers. There are members of the steelworkers, and they're just not able to provide the care that they know that they should be providing because of understaffing. I mean, I've talked to a lot of the nurses there. And so they're haunted by it. They're unable to sleep. Um, they're striking to get some enforceable staff ratios in their contract, which, um, you know, they're basically using the the strike that the New York state nurses did um, at Montefiore Bronx and Mount Sinai earlier this year as a model so they're holding out for that. Um, meanwhile, like the hospital is paying travel nurses three hundred dollars an hour to do their jobs. Um, so that's a that's an ongoing thing. Um, there have been some really interesting school strikes in Massachusetts which are illegal and the and the basically the union is like, We will pay the fine, we are going to strike. And so that has been really interesting. Um Uh, the Massachusetts, uh, teachers association is also, um, uh, led by reformers. Um, and then something that that's really interesting to me, um, being from the South, the union of Southern service workers, which is kind of a union that you're a member of wherever you go, whatever job you get. Um, they have been organizing, um, at Waffle House and, uh, And uh, have had some really cool demonstrations um, and getting workers involved in one of their big complaints is that they're charged a meal per shift at Waffle House, whether they want it or not. Um, Plus, of course, the understaffing, the low pay, customer abuse, danger from customers attacking them, um, all kinds of things that they're really uh, shining a spotlight there. So they're really great. Um, Communications workers are doing a lot of important call center organizing. A lot of it in the south too. Um, so that's another area to watch out for. Um, communications workers uh, have have been also trying to organize the banks. They just uh, went public with a couple uh, couple of um, Wells Fargo branches. So um, anyway, that there's some good stuff that they're doing. Um, yeah, so I would I would say those are those are some cool things to to look at.
0: Absolutely, and and thank you so much for giving a shout out to the Union of Southern Service Workers because they're also one of my, you know, most exciting, most most favored stories that I um, follow. Somebody working in the service industry who knows how hard it is <laughs> to organize such a mobile industry. I think what they're doing is is really exciting. Um, we do have. It sounds like one one call on the line. If we could get them live on air briefly.
2: Hello. Um, yeah, I have a question. I heard a brief report.
4: I think it was on BBC or NPR. It was only about a minute, and there was no elaboration. Uh, maybe I dreamt it, but I think they said that Amazon workers were on strike all across Europe, um, and they were striking specifically from uh, Black Friday to Cyber Monday. And I would think Cyber Monday would really get Amazon where they live. What do you know about that?
3: I don't know anything about that. But that doesn't mean... I
4: don't don't think I dreamt it. I'm sure I heard it briefly.
2: Probably.
4: And you haven't heard anything about Uh, Amazon uh, workers being on strike in Europe across different countries? Germany, France?
1: So I've heard reports in the past where there's been efforts at Amazon to launch strikes. But I think it, I could be, this is something that I'm not an expert on. They, they may be min, minority unions uh, where they are, have not organized the entire workplace so that there's there's these efforts to launch these strikes. But what I do know what's going on right now is that there's a major strike effort in Sweden against Tesla. And that's, it's spreading across the country. So. Uh, we're not just seeing class struggle happening here in the United States, but it's happening around the world. And uh, Sweden, obviously, they there's uh, better labor protections and more rights for working people than we have here. Uh, but we're seeing it. It's, it's driving Elon Musk crazy, and I, I can't say that uh, makes me upset at all.
0: <laughs> no, no, certainly not. So thanks so much for calling in. Um, sorry that we couldn't directly answer your question. But um, Jenny, um, our last question for you is, where can people go for reporting on the labor movement? You are here um, from Labor Notes, um, which is an incredible outlet, um, but there's many more out there. So if people are looking for worker-centered coverage of the labor movement, like what we've done here on Revolutions Per Minute tonight, um, what would you recommend for them to go?
3: Well, I mean, one thing that I should say is that when I started at Labor Notes back in 2010, we were close to the only game in town, and that's no longer true. There is a ton of good labor reporting going on out there. Um, Aliexpress and the crew at Jacobin have been doing great stuff in these times. It deserves a shout out. On the video side, More Perfect Union has been doing some interesting stuff, including exposés. Um... For an aggregator site, you could check out Portside Labor. They send a daily email, so that's portside.org. And, of course, subscribe to Labor Notes. We have a monthly magazine and a weekly e-newsletter. You can get to both of those at labornotes.org. Um, but there's really good stuff out there at a bunch of different outlets, and I don't even want to like uh, be exclusive because it because it's, really, it's really exploded, and it, that's really exciting to me.
0: And to me as well. And um, speaking for Jack, I think he would he would say the exact same thing. Um, if the caller is still listening, who called about the the Amazon strikes, um, our engineer in the studio um, was able to pull up um, a clip from the PBS NewsHour uh, covering that. So you might check that out on, on YouTube. But no, you did not dream it. And it honestly speaks to just how big this labor movement is and just how much power we could have um, when we when we come together as as the working class. So. That's going to be the end of our show tonight, but what a beautiful note to end on. Um, As we've gone through this show, I've been reminded of the phrase, the old time saying, the cause of labor is the hope of the world. And with so much going on in the world today, um, Israel's assault on Palestine, so many other political issues we didn't get a chance to touch on in a short hour. Being reminded of the strength of labor has given me a lot of hope. I hope you as well. So thanks so much for listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City. We're broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. You can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com, or on Twitter at nycrpm. We'll be back soon with more from the socialist movement in New York City and across the country and across the world. But that's all we have for you tonight. Solidarity forever. I'm Amy Wilson.
1: I'm Jack Devine.